Section 67, Introduction It will be recalled that before the Book of Commandments could be taken to Missouri for publication, the Lord intended to furnish a special introduction for it. Joseph Smith therefore called a special conference on November 1, 1831. After the conference convened, the Lord revealed what is now the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, and then the elders present were asked to bear witness to the divinity of the whole Book of Commandments. It was on this occasion that William E. McClellan convinced a few of the brethren that the language and content of some of the revelation could be improved upon. Of course, the language and content of the revelations were not those of Joseph Smith, but the Lord's. In a sense, this was an insult to the Lord, but he handled it like a patient parent dealing with little children. Here is what he said. Behold, and hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together, whose prayers I have heard, and whose hearts I know, and whose desires have come up before me. Behold, and lo, mine eyes are upon you, and the heavens and the earth are in mine hands, and the riches of eternity are mine to give. Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts, and verily this is the reason that ye did not receive. The Lord said it was because of fear that they were unwilling to receive the honor of certifying to the authenticity of the Book of Commandments. Naturally, if William E. McClellan was right and the language and content of the revelations needed to be improved upon, then the Lord understood why they were afraid to sign their names as witnesses. Now I, the Lord, give unto you a testimony of the truth of these commandments which are lying before you. Nevertheless, the Lord says he will tell them how they can gain a testimony of the authenticity of these revelations. Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known, and you have sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. To begin with, they are all well aware of the limited capacity of Joseph Smith to express himself because of his lack of formal education. They are also aware that these revelations are expressed in a language that is beyond his inherent abilities. Keeping this in mind, the Lord has the following suggestion. Now, seek ye out of the book of commandments even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you, they should select the very simplest of all the revelations which Joseph has received, and then appoint the most wise and skillful writer among them to perform an experiment. Or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that they are true. In fact, if there are any among the entire group who can write a document, equal to the simplest of Joseph's revelations, then they are justified in saying that they do not know that all of Joseph's revelations are of divine origin and true. But if ye cannot make one like unto it, ye are under condemnation, if ye do not bear record that they are true. On the other hand, 
if none among them can match the simplest of Joseph's revelations in language and content, then they are all under condemnation for refusing to serve as witnesses to the divine authenticity of the Book of Commandments. For ye know that there is no unrighteousness in them, and that which is righteous cometh down from above, from the Father of lights. The Lord points out to these doubting brethren that there is absolutely no unrighteousness in any of the revelations received by Joseph, and they should know from experience that truth and righteousness always comes down from heaven. Now a historical note. As we pointed out in the historical note at the close of section 1, the group selected William E. McClellan, who had raised the question in the first place, to try to produce a document at least equal to the simplest of Joseph's revelations. It is rather amazing that McClellan had the arrogance and self-confidence in his own ability to undertake this task. The group watched him struggle for a considerable period of time until he finally laid down his pen and confessed that he couldn't do it. Thereupon, the former doubters, in a spirit of contrite humility, united in declaring jointly that these commandments were both true and divinely inspired. This account is described in the History of the Church, Volume 1, page 226. And again, verily I say unto you that it is your privilege, and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears, and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual. The Lord tells these men that they are lacking in godly humility, but he gives them the promise that if they strip themselves of pride and of jealousies and fears, the veil will be parted and they will have the glorious privilege of seeing the Savior. The Lord says this cannot be done unless they refine themselves so that they will have the spiritual perception to see the Lord. For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh except quickened by the Spirit of God. The Lord verifies that no man can see God in his carnal state and live. Neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither after the carnal mind. In terms of God's science, man cannot in his carnal state penetrate the veil to see God. Ye are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels, Wherefore, continue in patience until ye are perfected. Not only is a carnal man unable to endure the presence of God, but they cannot even endure the presence of ministering angels. The task of these brethren is to continue patiently until they have become sufficiently perfected to enjoy these blessings. Let not your minds turn back, and when ye are worthy in mine own due time, Ye shall see and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. Amen. The Lord knows that these men will face trials and tribulations as leaders of the kingdom, 
However, they must not become so discouraged that they turn back. The Lord assures them that if they keep the faith and perform the tasks assigned to them, they will eventually have all the heavenly blessings conferred upon them by the prophet Joseph Smith. Section 68. Introduction. On November 3, 1831, there were four elders at the Hiram Conference who wanted to ask Joseph to approach the Lord for a personal revelation on the behalf of each one of them. This suggests that these were the four complainers who had criticized the quality of the language in the revelation which Joseph Smith had received from the Lord. If this were the case, it would appear that they were sufficiently chastised and embarrassed enough to request personal revelations in order to test their standing before the Lord. It is interesting that the Lord did not choose to give these individuals personal revelations. He gave them a joint communication with specific instructions to each of them where the Savior considered it appropriate. This is the text of section 68. My servant Orson Hyde was called by his ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel by the Spirit of the living God from people to people and from land to land in the congregations of the wicked, in their synagogues, reasoning with and expounding all scriptures unto them. And behold, and lo, this is an ensample unto all those who were ordained unto this priesthood, whose mission is appointed unto them to go forth. And this is the ensample unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. The Lord commences by describing the errand which was given to Orson Hyde when he was confirmed a member of the church. He was charged with proclaiming the gospel as the Spirit dictated it to him, and move from people to people and from land to land, expounding the scriptures to them. Little did Orson dream that in 1835 he would be ordained an apostle, and in 1840 he would travel 20,000 miles and stop over at the land of his ancestors. There he would stand on the Mount of Olives and dedicate Palestine for the return of the Jews. This would occur on October 21, 1841. On this journey, he could also seek out the chief rabbis in England, Germany, and various parts of Europe. And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Behold, this is the promise of the Lord unto you, O ye my servants. To completely establish the power and authority of God's servants, Jesus declared that their words were the same as those of Jesus himself when they were spoken under the influence of the Spirit. Wherefore be of good cheer, and do not fear. For I, the Lord, am with you, and will stand by you. And ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ, that I am the Son of the living God, that I was, that I am, and that I am to come. The Lord has a great mission for his servants to perform in restoring the fullness of the gospel throughout the world. 
He therefore tells them to take courage and fear not as they grapple with the wicked and preach the great message of the restored gospel to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. This is the word of the Lord unto you, my servant Orson Hyde, and also unto my servant Luke Johnson, and unto my servant Lyman Johnson, and unto my servant William E. McClellan, and unto all the faithful elders of my church, now the Lord expands his revelation to all four of these brethren. This includes not only Orson Hyde, but also Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, and William E. McClellan. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature, acting in the authority which I have given you, baptizing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. And he that believeth shall be blessed with signs following, even as it is written. Even at this early stage of church history, Jesus gives these elders the apostolic calling to preach to all the world and declares that they who believe and accept baptism shall be saved whereas those who reject it shall be damned. And unto you it shall be given to know the signs of the times, and the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. One of the great manifestations of God's power in the holders of the priesthood will be the fact that signs will follow those who believe and come into the church. And of as many as the Father shall bear record, to you shall be given power to seal them up unto eternal life. Amen. All of these brethren have been converted within the past year, and the Lord assures them that they will be given power to bless those who believe on their words and seal them up unto eternal life. And now concerning the items, in addition to the covenants and commandments, they are these. The Lord now turns from these four elders and speaks concerning other matters which lie heavily upon the heart of Joseph Smith. Notice that from here on the Lord is talking to the prophet and anyone involved in administering the affairs of the church. There remain hereafter in the due time of the Lord other bishops to be set apart unto the church, to minister even according to the first. It is obvious from this verse that the Lord is getting ready to establish a whole network of bishops. By the year 2000 A.D., there will be more than 23,000 bishops throughout the church. Wherefore they shall be high priests who are worthy, and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. And if they be literal descendants of Aaron they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are the firstborn among the sons of Aaron. For the firstborn holds the right of the presidency over this priesthood and the keys or authority of the same. No man has a legal right to this office to hold the keys of this priesthood except he be a literal descendant and the firstborn of Aaron. The Lord says bishops shall have two qualifications. First, they must be high priests, and secondly, they must be completely worthy to fulfill this high calling. To be worthy also implies the need to be capable of fulfilling the role of a judge in Israel. 
He must also be appointed by the first presidency of the church, unless he is a literal descendant of Aaron. In that case, a literal descendant of Aaron is entitled to his bishopric as a matter of inheritance. However, he still has to be appointed by the first presidency in order to exercise his bishopric. The Lord emphasizes this principle in the next three verses. But as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found provided he is called and set apart and ordained unto this power, under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. And the literal descendant of Aaron also must be designated by this presidency, and found worthy and anointed, and ordained under the hands of this presidency. Otherwise they are not legally authorized to officiate in their priesthood. But by virtue of the decree concerning their right of the priesthood descending from father to son, they may claim their anointing if at any time they can prove their lineage, or do ascertain it by revelation from the Lord under the hands of the above-named presidency. And again, no bishop or high priest who shall be set apart for this ministry shall be tried or condemned for any crime, save it be before the first presidency of the church. Bishops, by the very sensitive nature of their calling, are subjected to accusations and criticisms. However, they cannot be tried by any other tribunal than the first presidency of the church. And inasmuch as he is found guilty before this presidency by testimony that cannot be impeached, he shall be condemned. The bishop shall not be condemned by rumor or mere happenstance, but only by testimony that cannot be impeached. And if he repent, he shall be forgiven, according to the covenants and commandments of the church. And if he repents, he shall be forgiven, if forgiveness is within the dimensions of the covenants he has made with the Lord. Of course, there are two violations that cannot be forgiven. One is for murder, and the other is denying great revelations that have been revealed by the Holy Ghost. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. For this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized. Parents cannot neglect the duty of carefully instructing their children in the principles and ordinances of the gospel without having the sins of those children imposed on the heads of the parents. And their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old and receive the laying on of the hands. It is the duty of parents to make certain that their children are baptized when they reach the age of eight. And they shall also teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. It is also important that parents teach their children the importance of prayer and teach them to get into the habit of praying frequently. And the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is the responsibility of parents to set the example and teach their children to honor the sanctity of the Sabbath day.
and the inhabitants of Zion also shall remember their labors, inasmuch as they are appointed to labor in all faithfulness. For the idler shall be had in remembrance before the Lord. Members of the church must practice the gospel of work. This means to labor physically and mentally. The saints who do not labor faithfully will come under the judgment of the Lord. Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children are also growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. These things ought not to be, and must be done away from among them. Wherefore, let my servant Oliver Cowdery carry these sayings unto the land of Zion. The Lord strongly takes the members of the church in Zion to task who are lazy and indolent. In addition, their children are being neglected and being allowed to grow up in idleness and wickedness. The Lord wants Oliver Cowdery to take these charges against the saints in Zion with him when he takes the Book of Commandments to Missouri. And a commandment I give unto them, that he that observeth not his prayers before the Lord in the season thereof, let him be had in remembrance before the judge of my people. These sayings are true and faithful. Wherefore transgress them not, neither take therefrom. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, and I come quickly. Amen. The Lord also wants the saints in Zion to know that he is angry with them because they fail to observe their prayers to the Lord at night and morning, or in the season thereof. The Lord wants these offenders to be chastised by their leaders. It is interesting in all of this that the Lord does not mention the saints in Kirtland. Section 69. Introduction. After the elders agreed to serve as witnesses to the Book of Commandments during November 1831, the Book of Commandments was dedicated to the Lord by Joseph Smith. Immediately afterwards he received the following revelations. Hearken unto me, saith the Lord your God, for my servant Oliver Cowdery's sake. It is not wisdom in me that he should be entrusted with the commandments and the monies which he shall carry unto the land of Zion except one go with him who will be true and faithful. The Lord says this revelation is primarily for the benefit of Oliver Cowdery. It is obvious that there is a tremendous risk in taking the Book of Commandments to Missouri, along with the money which has been collected at Kirtland for the purchase of inheritances in Zion. Wherefore I, the Lord, will that my servant John Whitmer should go with my servant Oliver Cowdery, the Lord nominates John Whitmer, the church historian, to accompany Oliver Cowdery on this long and dangerous trip. And also that he shall continue in writing and making a history of all the important things which he shall observe and know concerning my church. However, the Lord does not want John Whitmer to think he is excused from his other duties in recording the history of the church. The Lord instructs John to record all that he observes and all of the important developments connected with the church about which he can learn. And also that he receive counsel and assistance from my servant Oliver Cowdery and others. John Whitmer is to include in his history all of the wise counsel he receives from Oliver Cowdery and any pertinent information he picks up from others. 
and also my servants who are abroad in the earth, should send forth the accounts of their stewardships to the land of Zion. For the land of Zion shall be a seat and a place to receive and do all these things. The Lord now says that the records and reports of the entire church, both at home and abroad, are to be assembled in Zion for safekeeping. It is obvious that the Lord wants the members of the church to be a record-keeping people. Nevertheless, let my servant John Whitmer travel many times from place to place, and from church to church, that he may the more easily obtain knowledge. John Whitmer is given the responsibility of traveling around the church and recording what he can learn about developments. Preaching and expounding, writing, copying, selecting, and obtaining all things which shall be for the good of the church and for the rising generations that shall grow up on the land of Zion, to possess it from generation to generation, forever and ever. Amen. It is obvious that the Lord wants the collection of all the information by John Whitmer to be not only for his own benefit, but for the whole church and the training of each rising generation. Section 70, Introduction From November the 1st to November the 12th, 1831, Joseph had to call four separate conferences— he would just get a revelation on one important subject and adjourn a conference when another critical sitchin would arise and he'd have to have another conference. However, Joseph did finally finish reviewing the Book of Commandments, whereupon Oliver Cowdery and John Whitmer were about ready to set out on their 800-mile journey to Missouri. At the last moment, Joseph approached the Lord and received the following revelation. Behold! And hearken, O ye inhabitants of Zion, and all ye people of my church who are afar off, and hear the word of the Lord which I give unto my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and also unto my servant Martin Harris, and also unto my servant Oliver Cowdery, and also unto my servant John Whitmer, and also unto my servant Sidney Rigdon, and also unto my servant William W. Phelps, by the way of commandment unto them. For I give unto them a commandment, Wherefore hearken and hear, for thus saith the Lord unto them. This revelation is not just to benefit the six members of the church who will receive the book of commandments as a stewardship, but it is an official declaration to the entire church, so there will be no misunderstanding as to which of the church members have the responsibility of publishing and promoting the new scripture. I, the Lord, have appointed them, and ordained them to be stewards over the revelations and commandments which I have given unto them, and which I shall hereafter give unto them. And an account of this stewardship will I require of them in the day of judgment. Wherefore I have appointed unto them, and this is their business in the church of God, to manage them and the concerns thereof, yea, the benefits thereof. Wherefore a commandment I give unto them, that they shall not give these things unto the church, neither unto the world. The Lord has indicated that under the law of consecration, these six leaders of the church who have labored so earnestly will be granted the responsibility of publishing and distributing the book of commandments, and it will be assigned to them as their stewardship. 
The Lord says the proceeds from the sale of these books should not be assigned to the church, but they should be shared by these six stewards as a compensation for their past labors and to support them in their future endeavors for the church. Nevertheless, inasmuch as they receive more than is needful for their necessities and their wants, it shall be given into my storehouse, and the benefits shall be consecrated unto the inhabitants of Zion and unto their generations, inasmuch as they become heirs according to the laws of the kingdom. If there are any funds in excess of those needed for the actual support of these brethren, the money should be turned over to the storehouse for distribution to other deserving stewards. Behold, this is what the Lord requires of every man in his stewardship, even as I, the Lord, have appointed, or shall hereafter appoint unto any man. And behold, none are exempt from this law who belong to the church of the living God. Yea, neither the bishop, neither the agent who keepeth the Lord's storehouse, neither he who is appointed in a stewardship over temporal things. The Lord says that following this same pattern, it is required of every steward to dedicate his excess profits to the common storehouse. This provides the bishop with the resources to set up additional inheritance for worthy stewards. The requirement of turning in one's excess each year is the genius of the consecration process. No one, regardless of their standing in the church, is exempt from this requirement. He who is appointed to administer spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire, even as those who are appointed to a stewardship to administer in temporal things, yea, even more abundantly, which abundance is multiplied unto them through the manifestations of the Spirit. Those who administer the spiritual affairs of the kingdom are also entitled to be compensated for their services or stewardship, their compensation should be according to the dictates of the Spirit. Nevertheless, in your temporal things you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. In this verse, the Lord lays down the most difficult rule of all. This is the responsibility of the bishop to see that the people are all equal in their temporal affairs. To accomplish this, the Lord describes the process in more detail in a later revelation. He says, quote, And you are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claim on the properties for the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardship. Every man according to his wants and his needs, inasmuch as his wants are just. Now, that's Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 17. But who decides when a man's wants are not just? The Lord says in verse 14 that the Spirit will indicate whenever a steward is making unjust demands on the storehouse. What a great system. Now, this commandment I give unto my servants for their benefit while they remain for a manifestation of my blessings upon their heads, and for a reward of their diligence and for their security, for food and for raiment, for an inheritance, for houses and for lands, in whatsoever circumstances I, the Lord, shall place them, 
and whithersoever I the Lord shall send them. Notice that the Lord intends to have the law of consecration provide all of the necessities of life, even travel expenses. It is easy to see why this system would only operate among righteous, God-fearing people who practice the golden rule. For they have been faithful over many things, and have done well inasmuch as they have not sinned. Now the Lord comes to the parable of the talents. Every so often the Lord redistributes the assets of the order, and the bishop allocates to those who are the most profitable stewards a little extra because at harvest time these stewards bring in additional resources to build up new inheritances for young people or new converts. Behold, I the Lord am merciful and will bless them, and they shall enter into the joy of these things. Even so. Amen. There is no doubt but what the Lord will be able to pour out his blessings on a righteous people who will faithfully practice the law of consecration. We hope you're enjoying this podcast by W. Cleon Skousen. To find additional books and recordings on this and other topics, please visit skousenlibrary.com.